You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to say a little thing up top. Nicole and I recorded this episode in November, and then I proceeded to do about a month straight of craft shows. So I have a few thoughts that are a little bit different than what I recorded in this episode, but for the most part, it rings true. I will say there's a part where I talk about these rule, quote unquote, rules that I created for myself around the types of markets that I would and would not apply to. And I ended up breaking some of those rules. So we'll just say that there are more guidelines that I am willing to reconsider on a case-by-case basis. But basically, one of the biggest craft shows in the city, I had gotten waitlisted And I forgot how expensive the booth fee is, but it's above the cap that I had given myself. And I'm really grateful that I went through and did the market because I got accepted last minute. Someone dropped out and I found out a few days before the market that I could do it. And it ended up kind of changing a lot of my plans for the month. But I'm so grateful that I did that because it ended up being the most profitable market that I've ever had or well the most profitable single day market because sometimes the markets that I do are multi-day but uh, I just wanted to add that up top because it's worth saying that we set boundaries or and parameters for ourselves but sometimes those things are worth reconsidering when an opportunity comes up that may feel outside of our comfort zone but is worth it to try I think for the most part, the rest of it still (laughs) rings true. Um, And I'm sure in the future, we'll come back with another episode about craft shows, um, especially if you come to us with any questions or feedback or takeaways from your experiences. And Happy New Year. And we're so excited to release a bunch of episodes with guests in uh, the coming weeks. And we'll probably do another episode about visualizing your finances or financial transparency or, you know, some update to a finance episode. 
and uh, let's get into this week's. Hello, Beyond the Studio listeners. On today's episode, I am going to be talking to you all about craft shows, craft markets, doing pop-ups, and selling at in-person events. Um, just a little heads up before diving into it. I'm not talking about fine art fairs, like the art basils of the world. I don't have any experience with those, so I will not be discussing that. However, your local craft show, your local pop-up market, your local art market, I will be talking about those because in uh, preparing for this episode, I learned that I have done probably about 100 days of in-person markets and events, and uh, I feel like those 100 days have really taught me a lot. So now I am going to share with you some information I guess another little caveat I should say is that I am obviously speaking from personal experience, so this is really uh, thoughts and advice and takeaways based on what works for my business. Um, Depending on the type of work you produce or sell, what works for you may be totally different. Like I create soft sculptures, so things that work for me may not work for a ceramicist or may not work for someone that is selling paintings, so Just something to consider. Just wanted to share that before diving in. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm here, too. (laughs) I have not a lot to offer this conversation because I haven't really participated in this world, but I'm excited to learn, and I feel like this is going to be really valuable for um, any artist or maker that is looking to start doing in-person craft shows, or maybe they've done a few and had mixed results and are just trying to figure out what to do next. And I feel like I've gotten to see um, your you, Amanda, over the years participate in all kinds of different events and like take take breaks, like swear off doing craft shows, come back to them, <laughs> like do in-person events. So I, it just seems like they've kind of served different purposes in different seasons of your life and business. And yeah. I'm excited to talk about that. And there's a lot to cover here from like what to bring, how to prepare, um, what to expect, uh, like how does this fit into your overall income pie chart, since I know we've talked about those lately and all kinds of things to get into. Yeah. And If you didn't listen to our last episode or any episodes where I've talked about craft shows, I have had some very mixed experiences with selling in person. Some have been incredible where I made more money in a day than I thought was possible for someone like me. Uh, And I've had days where I cried a lot because of how horrible the experience was. So you just, you never know. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of these experiences, it's like something that worked for me at 25 is maybe not something that's working for me at 35. So it's worth recognizing your own personal shifts in values and what you need and want out of an experience. It's going to change over time, depending on, you know, your physical capacity or your time capacity, or, you know, the stage you're at in your art career or whatever. There's just so many things to factor in. So all that considered, today we're talking about craft shows. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess where should we start? I put together a bunch of notes, listeners, and they're a little bit all over the place. Um, I did collect some questions from folks that follow me online that have seen me doing craft shows over the years. um, And I've just had a bunch of conversations with fellow artists and makers over the years that um, led me to compile a bunch of notes. So Nicole, we can go 
go about this however. Yeah, I'm trying to think about where would a good starting point be. I'm curious to know just like how, what's your criteria for, like how do you find a market? Where do you search for these? How do you decide what to participate in? Mm -hmm. Also how to prepare, but maybe like a good starting point would just be like, let's say you're starting out and you're like, I know this is a good way to reach new audiences and make some real like in-person physical connections with, you know, potential audience members, but I'm just not even sure like where to look Mm -hmm. or how to go about it. Where would you start? So I find markets by following other artists that are local that participate in markets, see what events they're promoting. Um, A lot of local businesses will do pop-up events or host pop-up events and opportunities. Sometimes they'll host markets or neighborhoods in town sometimes have their own events. Uh, A lot of times farmers markets will also have art markets. Basically, look at what's happening in your town or city. Where do you live? What events are occurring? I usually keep like a saved folder, um, like on Instagram or various social medias, you can like save posts. So I'll have a folder where I just save every time I see someone local promoting an event. And I'll either go to the event personally to figure out whether it's something I want to participate in in the future, or just to go support local artists and meet people. It also helps to talk to other artists. Uh, There is an immense amount of generosity I have found in the maker community because so much of it is kind of hard to find. And it's not like there's a database to easily search to find all the markets in your area. And I've thought about trying to compile that in the past, but then realize like it's just constantly changing. So it's hard to maintain a comprehensive list, but talk to friends. Um, I have an artist, uh, my friend Claire, she and I have started messaging each other different uh, like vendor calls or applications that we see go out. So we met at doing craft shows together. And um, I think either she introduced herself to me or I introduced myself to her. And we've talked behind the scenes of like, oh, yeah, it's really hard to find markets and just kind of given each other the like, anytime I see one, I'll send it to you. Anytime you see one, please send it to me. So it's really helpful to get tapped into the community and asking each other for whatever you see. And you can even start a like a group message with a bunch of artists in your area to like share applications and that deadlines that you see. So that's how I find them. And a lot of events are recurring. So certain like music venues or bars or breweries will have like an annual holiday market or an annual Valentine's market or summer event. So it's worth looking into those as well. Yeah, and then once you've found a list of potential markets that you'd be interested in, how do you go about like participating in them? Or it sounds like you're, there's an application process. What does that look like? Um, I know we've talked about like applications for things like public art projects or grants in the past, mm-hmm. but what would you say, like how would you prepare for a craft show and what kinds of things do they typically want to see? Oh, I probably should have like pulled up some applications from different markets just to give an idea of what they look like. But a application to a craft show, typically you give the information about your business, you talk about the types of things you're going to sell, 
you talk about your price points and like the range of things that are available for sale at your booth or table. Usually it lets you pick if there are options on like whether or not you want to vend indoor or outdoors because some events do both. Whether you need like how much space you need for your booth, uh, what materials or supplies you'll be coming with. Some markets will provide tables or they'll provide tents. A lot of applications will have a fee. Um, Usually application fees are under $40. I love to send out or apply to those free events. So I will just like put in applications for free stuff all the time. But uh, typically an application fee is like $15. At least that's how it is here in Baltimore. It's also worth mentioning that where you live is going to have a big factor in the finances of your situation like cost of living in baltimore is very different than cost of living in san francisco which is where nicole is based so i might be talking about you know application fees that are in a different price point than say a vendor that's based in san francisco so that's worth remembering (laughs) um but i can give you i i basically as of this year have developed an array of personal rules that I kind of give myself for markets that I want to apply to and things that I'm considering. Um, I'll say first off that like I developed these rules through trial and error and uh, these rules may not work for you, but this is what I need for myself right now. I have put a limit on how many markets I apply to now. So like I'm not applying to any new or first time markets like uh, a market that is inaugural, that it's never been done before. So I personally have stopped doing that because usually at those events, there's a lot of working out the kinks. There's a lot of mishaps. There's a lot of things that they haven't planned for because they've never planned an event before or never planned that event before. So no new or first time events to me. No more new to me events like I'm probably going to change this next year but since this was god I guess I'll give a little more context I've been doing markets off and on since 2012 I believe and or maybe 2014 Um, I haven't done them every year I just took a like three-ish year hiatus off of doing markets so these are my rules for like my first year back at markets I decided that I wasn't going to do any more new to me markets. I was only going to apply to markets that I have done in the past that I've had success at that are familiar. And that was just sort of like, I'm anxious. So this is a nice comfort zone of like, well, I've done this. I know the people who host it. I know the artists that do it. This will be a little bit better. And I didn't totally stick to that rule. Like I had applied to a few markets this year that I've never done before, some of which have been great and some of which have been not great. And I'll talk all about those in a bit. It's worth visiting a market and talking to vendors before applying to a market if you've never done it before. I've decided no outdoor markets for me this year. There are a lot of variables that are out of your control with outdoor markets, like the weather that can make or break an event. Uh, you can get heat stroke, you can have your your stuff flood, you can have rain prevent anyone from coming oh out to the event. Yeah, I, I've literally had a, a flood of water rushing through my booth while also standing near like an electrical box. It, did, it didn't feel good. <laughs> uh. 
right? This year, I decided not to do any out-of-state markets, so I'm just sticking to local markets. This is mostly because we are now a one-car household, so since I share a car with my partner, I can't just go skedaddle flying or, or, you know, driving across the country with our means of transportation, so I'm sticking local. And that also, within that, I'm, like, not traveling more than an hour away from the city mostly just because I'm getting older I'm getting tired I don't like driving in the dark and it's hard to add on that kind of travel time on top of a full day of work so like I don't want to like I used to drive to Pittsburgh to do a market and I would drive like it's like a four to five hour drive and I would drive to Pittsburgh do the market and then drive home same day by myself and I'm like I could do that in my 20s I can't do that in my 30s and beyond so <laughs> yeah I'm curious to hear more about like when you were doing those out-of-state markets like how you factor mm-hmm. in the travel but we can get to that later yeah um I this year I'm not doing any markets that have a vendor fee over $150 the ideal range is to keep the vendor fee under 50 which a a vendor fee is different than an application fee. The application fee is just the the fee you are paying as your application is getting reviewed, but there is typically a vendor fee where you are confirmed to be a part of the event, and usually the vendor fee goes towards paying for like promoting the event and you know maybe vent- renting out the space, maybe renting out uh, like tables, whatever, mm-hmm. or like paying the folks that are putting on the event. I've never hosted an event before, so I'm not sure about the logistics around that side. I told myself I wasn't going to do more than two markets a month, and I would not do more than 12 markets this year. So obviously, I had plenty of months where I was not doing markets. But I, in the past, I've had years where I've done a market like every other weekend, and it is really exhausting, just lots and lots of work. <laughs> And yeah, so this year I'm like trying to be really selective about the ones that I'm doing and not exclusively relying on markets as my source of income, but, you know, diversifying my time. Every month, uh, typically on the first, I do research and applications for grants, uh, craft shows, residencies, not that I've gotten into any residencies but that's when I do all of my research and applications and whenever I do a market I I track every single sale Um, it just helps to know what inventory is moving what does well where just helps to know how much money you're making you you need to know that Uh, so yeah those are my personal rules for craft shows this year yeah, it seems like the criteria, I mean, every rule has like been put in place because of uh, a previous, based on personal experience. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm interested. I create laws just like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like when you see those really specific rules outside of a swimming pool or something where it's like no diving mm-hmm. after you've had like two hamburgers. <laughs> Yeah, you're like something really specific, like a very specific incident involving two hamburgers happened in order to mm-hmm. create this rule. So yeah, you're like, who caused the creation of this rule? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, so do, do you remember your first ever craft show? Yes, technically, 
my first craft show was the MICA Art Market, which is a student and alumni market mm. at the art college that Nicole and I went to, where they basically turn one of the college buildings into a huge market. And that show, it's very specific to MICA. Like they, they run every aspect of that market different than any market I've ever done before. Like the MICA art market, you basically, all of uh, the artists are divided by category or department and you work shifts where you're selling not only your work, but work of other artists that are there. And they, the school runs all of the sales and then they give the vendors a check later, which is very much not how they typically work. Typically, you are responsible for selling your own work. You are mm-hmm. the one who is managing all of your sales. You're managing your money, your inventory, all of it. So that's a pretty unique market. The other market, the first market uh, beyond the MICA art market I did was called the Go West Craft Fest in Philadelphia. And it was actually in a giant old cemetery in West Philly. And it was so cool. Such a beautiful event. Um, I had like the tiniest little table. I brought a couple friends with me that were like, there's this place I want to eat in Philly. So I'll get a ride to Philly and help you at your booth. (laughs) Um, So that was cool. But uh, yeah, so much has changed since my first market. My, My whole setup is different. My body of work is completely different. My branding is different. How I approach markets is different. Um, But I kind of had to do the, like, I counted 84 individual markets. I had to do all of those in between then and now in order to get to where I am now. Yeah. And those markets were in Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, New Jersey, New York. So I really vended a ton around um, this region and gone a little bit outside of it. But I think the most I ever made at a market in a single day event was several thousand dollars, which is not my average. But the the lowest earnings I've ever had at a market technically was a loss, um, like spent more money than I made to be there. I've had markets where I have completely broken even. And oh, the, the first time that happened, I drove to Philly with my best friend to like show her what my market experience is like and I'm thinking I'm gonna like show off and be all cool and it was a terrible event it was rainy and the most exciting thing that happened was people brought dogs out in the rain um so that was nice but I was like of course this is the event that I like bring my best friend to try to show off and I like showed her how embarrassing I can be (laughs) or how embarrassed I can feel Well, I guess it just goes to show how wildly different the experiences can be and how different markets can be. Yeah, completely. It's so hard to know what you were getting yourself into. And because it's an active event, there's just a variety of things that can factor into whether or not it's successful. A lot of times the location has like made an event or ruined an event And you can't really do anything about that until you try, especially if it's in a place that you're unfamiliar with and you don't know if the area is walkable or has good parking or good foot traffic or accessible by public transportation or if there's food nearby and like people generally populate that area anyways. So 
it's just wild how many variables there can be, which is why we're having a lengthy conversation about it, because there's just a lot to consider. And there's so much unknown. And everyone's experience with markets will be so unique. And it often can feel very isolating. Like I was reading online earlier, a vendor I met at a market earlier this year was saying how they're getting so burnt out on markets, and then you like can't do any more this year. And I'm like, Oh, that's weird. I like, I saw their social media and was thinking like, man, look at them go. They're doing all these markets. How amazing. And it's like, mm. but their experience of it was that it was fucking exhausting and like mm-hmm. not worth the the way that they were approaching it. But like, you don't know until you talk to somebody. And yeah. Nicole and I were talking about this before getting into this conversation, but we, we often compare ourselves so much to what we see other people doing and those comparisons tend to lean pretty negative and pretty, uh, what was it, like scarcity brain? Yeah. Yeah, our, our brains are just making us uh, afraid that we don't have enough. So there's just so much panic and stress involved. But I digress. I don't even, I'm all over the place. Well, I'm, I'm interested in um, what are some of the criteria like, uh, maybe rewinding that you would look for like basic things that a market should provide or like what expectations you should have because um, mm-hmm. your criteria for like deciding what kinds of events you do has obviously changed over the years but for someone that's newer just starting out or someone who doesn't know anything about craft shows like me I'm curious like what do you uh, what do you even look for as far as like these are the things that you know a market should provide or Mm-hmm. Or maybe on the the reverse side, like red flags, where you're like, okay, if I see this, I'm I'm not, it's not worth my time. So maybe just some like general things to look into before you complete your application. Um, so maybe you've compiled all these different markets you're thinking about and trying to decide which ones you want to apply to, which ones make sense to you. So first of all, look into the application and vendor fees. What are those fees? Do they seem reasonable to you? Do they seem ex- like accessible to you? Are you able to cover those fees? Will they put a like will it be potentially harmful for you to do this event if you don't make any money? Is that going to be a huge financial loss based on those fees or does that feel pretty safe? Like there was a 3-day event I did in DC that was $300 and I I profited $8 out of that entire event, which really was basically a loss because of the way I was considering my profit. I was like not factoring travel, my time, any of it. Mm. Um, And if I had thought about it a little bit in advance, I maybe would have avoided that. But maybe I had to do that event to learn from it. Um, You also want to look into booth space dimensions and what is provided. Do they have table or chair? Uh, How wide is the booth space? The like smallest booth space you should really get is like two feet (laughs) two to three feet by uh like six feet because most tables are six foot tables so you need to at least Mm -hmm. have enough room for your table and for you to stand in front or behind or beside it sometimes there the space you have to fill it's like 12 feet by 12 feet so maybe if you bring your little six foot table it's going to be really small so looking at how much space you have, what's available in the space. Like, do you have or need access to an outlet? What's the lighting like? 
what is the distance uh, to the event for, you know, where you live? What's parking like around there? Is it a walkable area? Uh, Is it in a neighborhood that already has existing traffic? Because Mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that will help introduce new audience members to your work. The, The purpose of the market, in my perspective, is, or the purpose of participating in a market is to get your work in front of other people that are not seeing it and also to give people the opportunity to buy your work in person. So if there are factors to the event preventing that, like some events are also ticketed. So like will the attendants have to pay to get into the event, Mm. which can be a barrier to entry. Also with parking, like are you going to have to park in a garage? Are you going to be able to park nearby the event? Is loading in and out going to be a huge challenge? I once did an event that was at a baseball stadium where we had to park in a garage up the street and like carry huge armloads of stuff, like blocks and flights of stairs away. And just there's so much, so many random things that can, you, you don't think about it or know about it until you experience it and you're like, oh, yeah, loading in and out is exhausting. And like, had I known I was going to have to park up the street, I would have accounted for the extra hour it was going to take to get my stuff inside. Yeah. Do you typically bring have to bring your own table and chairs? And then like in that case, mm-hmm. would you have like rolling carts that help you move your things? Or do you expect a venue to provide that kind of thing? Um, a lot of venues will have a table or chair or tent as an option. Um, these typically are like much bigger events. Like I used to do uh, Crafty Bastards in DC, which is a really big recurring event that was put on by the city paper. And they have like live music, food vendors. So they have tables and chairs and all kinds of things that you can choose to opt into, usually for a fee, or you provide your own. But more often than not, I'm bringing all of my own equipment to a market. There's been a handful of events where they've had tables but it's not typical Um, or if it is it's like a rentable option that you'd be paying for so it is worth looking at in the application process what is the event going to provide so especially if you're paying a fee to be there what is that fee going towards are they providing food or drinks or coffee or a snack sometimes events will provide those things Will the event be staffed to watch your booth, especially if it's a multi-day event? Like, are you having to leave inventory overnight someplace? Is it Mm. enclosed? Is it inside? Is there security? Um, Is there access to the public where you would have to be worried about things getting ruined or stolen? I've had things stolen from my booth. Definitely one time I knew about, but probably things have been stolen without my noticing. But that was, I did a, uh, a multi-day event called Artscape here in Baltimore that's outdoors. Oh. And that event has like been consistently the most grueling event because it's usually during the hottest week of summer. I've seen vendors get heat stroke at that event. Oh my gosh. Um, and because it's a fully outdoor event where they provide the tents, you like leave your stuff in your booth because you can't. You can't like drive your car up to unload and reload for the next day. So you leave your stuff there and they had, quote unquote, wandering security. But one year my booth 
was robbed and a bunch of inventory of mine and oh my, my booth mates was stolen. So that was a huge bummer. But <sighs> these things happen. Um, that saying, you can get uh, limited event insurance. So you can get like limited liability insurance when you are vending at an event for oh, the day. And that covers if something in your booth causes harm to someone attending the event or you could also potentially have some coverage for your merchandise if something like that happens or if your inventory breaks oh i have seen ceramicists have whole tables fall over and everything shattered and it's oh my god devastating because like what an immense loss in so many ways and it just sucks so, Whoa, that what because of wet like weather or how does that happen? Weather or like the table broke or someone bumped into a table or maybe it, the table wasn't like locked in right or something was not balanced right. Like, oh I don't gosh. know. I just was at an event and I t- hear a crash and see an entire table of ceramics to my side just shattered everywhere. And oh, that's yeah. devastating. Right? What a loss. So do you get do you get event coverage now for every market that you go to? No. Maybe I should, but I don't. Um part of that is maybe because I'm like stubborn and I'm like what's what it, what are my felt plants going to do to someone? Like I cannot right. <laughs> I, I mean, guess knock on, on wood, but I cannot find a way that harm could be po- caused from my booth. Like it's soft stuff everywhere, but some events require it. Usually they are larger events. Um, They'll require every vendor to have a like a a limited insurance policy for the day. And you can it's Mm -hmm. usually like 30 bucks, 35 bucks to get, you know, whatever level of coverage you need. And that will help in case there's anything that goes wrong. Yeah. So these are all good questions to ask, it seems, when you're considering an event <laughs> as far as the basics go. I know you have a pretty mm-hmm. comprehensive list of things that you take with you. I don't know if that's something you want to oh, share yeah. here or if we want to like share that list separately. Um, I'm happy but- to share a typed, like a, a written version of this list, but I'll read it really quick. Um, so this is my market packing list. This is what I bring with me to every single market that I attend. I bring my table, which I actually have a five foot table. So there's that. Uh, (laughs) A tablecloth because you need your display to look beautiful. Uh, It is how you draw people in and how you keep your merchandise clean. Um, A chair to sit in or a yoga mat to stand on because typically these events are at least five hours, but sometimes longer. And if you are not used to being on your feet, For that long, you can bring a chair or you can bring something comfortable to stand on, wear comfy shoes. That's like rule number one. I bring a clothing rack and hangers because I have shirts and totes and bandanas that I sell. For my display, I have an array of boxes, crates, little bowls, baskets, and shelves that I've either made or I've like found around the house to just kind of separate my various items but also display them in a way that kind of gives the vibe of the type of environment I envision my work living in so I'll I'll like 
you know, have my patches in like a cute little display and have my stickers in a cute little display and keep all my cat toys in these cute little bowls. And, you know, people want to see cute stuff and cute stuff. You're going to want to bring signage or uh, I have like a little bunting that says close call studio that I put at the front of my table. But I also have price signs that I have with all of the groups of merchandise that I have for a lot of individual items. I have like hang tags that have my branding and website information on it so that people that buy your work know how to find you because a lot of times folks that attend these markets will buy work from a variety of vendors and not remember who sold what. So making sure that they know who you are if they bought something from you is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. At markets, I like to wear an apron, like a little, um, (laughs) I actually use my old restaurant apron from when I worked in food service. So I just have like a really small apron that uh, I use to hold my cash, my phone, any like pens, um, or like whatever valuables you might have with you. I always like I process payments on my phone. So keeping my phone and my cash on my body helps. But you could use like a fanny pack or a bum bag. If you live in Australia, you wouldn't say fanny pack. Um, Mm. Or a crossbody bag, whatever. Yeah, bum bag. (laughs) Cute. I recommend everyone bring a pen and a notebook or two notebooks. Um, I mean, some people might like you might track your inventory and sales through your point of sales, like if you're using Square or your credit card processor. Um, But I like to keep a notebook where I write down every item that sold, how much it sold for, and then I just keep track of that information when I'm doing my taxes and all of that. And that's helpful for processing, you know, keeping track of your cash payments, your card payments, what inventory you need to restock at the end, what if or what inventory sells well at what events, because certain things might do better in one place over another. And you just never know. And it's also worth it to have a pen and notebook out on your table to collect email addresses for your newsletter. If you have a newsletter, this is a great way to keep people involved and not have to spend any money. With that, I would also have business cards or like a QR code where people can scan for your website or social media. Um, You'll probably want to bring shopping bags like paper bags, wrapping paper, boxes, tissue paper, whatever you would use to like wrap up your merchandise after somebody sells it. A lot of people bring their own bags, but it's helpful to have a bag. Bring a little bit of extra of everything, like extra price signs. Um, I always bring things like safety pins, binder clips, some string, scissors, tape, a towel or some cleaning wipes. You never know if someone's going to spill on your stuff. If you're going to need to like reinforce your table or your display or like replace some signs, it's worth it at these events to dress comfortably because like I said, you're working. So you're going to have to be loading in boxes of your stuff, loading in your table. You might be doing a lot of walking. So wear something you might sweat in, but also feel cute in because you're also going to be a salesperson for a number of hours and in interacting with customers. I always bring a face mask to events now, uh, especially if it's indoor. But just if you are potentially sick, I mean, just since COVID, it's worth it to always have Mm -hmm. a face mask whether it's for you, for your customer, for your fellow vendors. All of the markets that I do now are very COVID conscious. So it's worth it to uh, consider that as well. You're going to want to probably bring water, snacks, 
coffee, tea, whatever, uh, to keep yourself hydrated and fed throughout the day, you're going to want to bring either a Square or other credit card processing method. Um, Square, if you are unfamiliar, it's those little Square credit card processors you see a lot of times at you know, cafes, someone might turn an iPad around to you and that's how you're processing your payment. But there's all kinds of different credit card processors and you can often get those processors for free because they are going to take payment out of the credit card processing. So worth it to look into that. And then I always bring cash to in-person events. I like to have $100 of cash with me at the start of an event so that I am able to give people exact change. So I'll bring like $15 worth of ones, $35 worth of fives, $30 worth of tens, and then a 20. When I'm bringing my inventory for shirts, I try to bring three of each size and color. And for like patches, stickers, bandanas, the other things where I have multiples, I'll have anywhere from like five to 15 of those pieces with me. And then a ton of one of a kind stuff. For outdoor markets, I said I wasn't doing them this year, but if I am doing an outdoor market, I will bring my tent, which is a, I think a 10 foot by 10 foot tent, like a pop-up tent. Um, I don't have tent walls, but I do have tent weights, which are often required for outdoor events because the wind can literally blow your tent away, which can also knock over your inventory and injure an innocent bystander. So Way down your tents if you're going to be outside. <laughs> um, if you're doing an outdoor event, you all might also need to bring lights, um, especially if it's an event that goes into the evening, which might require a power supply or cables, extension cords, the like. So that's my packing list. That's what I bring. And I usually, if I haven't done a craft show in a while, I will do a practice setup of my booth before like the day or before the event. That way I have an idea mm, of like smart. what I need to bring, where it goes. I'll like take a picture of my booth setup then. That way when I get to the event, I'm like, okay, this is where these things all go. And I can just go into autopilot mode and not have to like actively make decisions in that moment. Yeah. And it also helps to know like how much time you're going to need to set up for an event. Like it takes me about an hour to set up my booth and that's not factoring in like unloading my car, uh, which could take up to another hour sometimes, which is part of why I've stuck to local stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is super comprehensive. I'm I'm so grateful you shared this because I feel like you know, there are basic things that you would imagine you bring, like your inventory or table chairs, but there's all these other little things that I'm sure, like if you've never done this before and you get there on the day of, like you, you're you just thinking of them in the moment. It's like, oh, it'd be great to have a snack or like I really need a pen or just like all these little mm-hmm. things that crop up throughout the day. So this is super useful to know. Um, I wanted to ask you more about like how you're tracking. Well, first of all, how do you know how much inventory to bring with you for an event? I'm sure that some of this is gained through experience, but how do you determine like how how much like of each product or how many things in general to bring with you? Um, part of that is from experience. Like I've had markets in the past where. I'll sell things out fairly quickly and I'm like, oh, I really should bring more of that or I should 
have more of that stock available. And then I've had markets where I've like overbrought a ton of inventory and I'm like, I don't need to bring all that. So like I only bring two to three of each shirt size and color because I have a, a variety of shirt designs. So the likelihood that I'm going to sell out is pretty slim, but also like I used to bring, I used to try to bring like five or six of each size and like five or six shirts of each size for from like extra small to 4XL and then also doing that in like six different shirt designs. I end up carrying like two or three Ikea bags just of shirts and it's not worth it to do that. Um, oh, also Ikea bags are mm-hmm. the like giant blue, yellow, clear, whatever Ikea bags are fantastic for carrying inventory to and from your car to markets because you can see your stuff. They're like somewhat water resistant. So if there's rain, you can like transport your stuff without it getting wrecked. And they're just big and can hold a lot of things. So that's another pro tip. little tip. Yeah, pro tip from me to you. I try to like, for me, the things that tend to sell the best at markets are like my cat toys. So from doing a bunch of markets, I realized people want more cat toys. So it's led me to making more cat toys. This year has been a real learning experience with markets because I I basically had a completely different body of work going into markets in 2023 from what I used to have at markets when I was doing them before in like 2019. So I had to really think like there were products I used to live off of basically that I don't even make anymore and things that I live off of now that I never used to make. Mm -hmm. So it Mm -hmm. it kind of will change over time. Um, I was talking to a a friend that's a vendor who makes – she does like hand-painted clothing, but all of the clothing is like secondhand or vintage. So it'll just be like a one-off with the size. So she's like, I have this suit in a size 12 and I bring it to every market because I know eventually I'll encounter someone that loves that suit that's a size 12. But until then, mm. I'll just keep carrying it from market to market. I think for markets, uh, it's helpful to have a, a range of things that you have for sale. So like at my booth, I have or booth or table, whatever, I have products that are a dollar. And I also have things that are over a hundred dollars. And so it makes it approachable for a variety of price points. I can't afford everything that I sell at my booth, but I really hope someone that approaches it can. So, you know, I may only be able to drop like a couple dollars at someone's booth or 20 bucks, whatever, but someone may come up to me that is like, I can spend $300 on your art today and I will. So it's worth it to have a good mix of the type of work that you have, especially if you're a a multifaceted artist that is making work of of many disciplines, you can show it all if you want. I mean, as much as you can fit on your table without overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think um, as far as pricing, that's a good rule of thumb in general. Like you're not always your customer. So having a range of things available for people seems like a good idea. I also wanted to ask you about um, payment processing. You mentioned that you use uh, Square Reader. Are you usually taking payments on your phone? Like, do you ever see people with other devices or 
like what would you recommend would be the most seamless way to process payments for people in real life? I've seen folks use the like use an iPad with like the whole credit card swipe thing. And then I've seen folks also use uh, it's like a little brick that will it'll do like the tap scan where you don't have to insert your card or swipe your card. I use the like OG square reader because it still functions. And so it's just a like an inch by inch little device that I plug into my phone. Like I said, I use a dongle because my phone doesn't have the headphone jack anymore. And that was the input that it used. So I use the dongle and that is just like a classic swipe card reader. So you can still like manually type in numbers if you need to. In Square, you can like set up um, a number of buttons for your products, including photos. So it's like very easy to process payments or you can manually type in every individual sale. I tend to do that just because I I love doing things the hard way for myself. <laughs> um, but it's worth noting that if you manually type in a card number versus swiping or tapping it, it actually processes it at a different, like there's a different fee. It's a higher fee if you manually type in a number versus like uh, the credit card processing fee. So oh, you can, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of things you can set up within your square to allow for adding tax, to allow for adding tip, um, to choose a uh, like a price limit to when someone would sign. Um, you can collect emails for your email list with it, which probably is one of the better ways because someone is more likely to like type their email in uh, their email correctly as opposed to you like reading it off of like a handwritten notebook and then putting it in to the computer and hoping that you mm -hmm. read it correctly. <laughs> um, so that is what I use. But there are a lot of other process, like card processors. Um, that's just the one that I'm familiar with and that I use. Um, but there are some, some ways that you can like link it up with your website to track your inventory. Um, I just have not activated that feature so I'm not super familiar with it but you can have Square do most of the work for you I just use it in a fairly manual kind of way but it has a lot of automations you can set up and uh ways to just make it easier I don't know yeah I was wondering um as someone who sells work um both in person and online if there is any overlap between those systems like like does square at all connect to your or I'm trying to think of how to phrase the question but like basically is there any like syncing I think there's a way to have your web store and your like in-person sales via a square reader I think there is a way to have it connected or, or to have it pull from the same inventory data um, mm. I tend to do it pretty manually because I've always had my work spread across a variety of platforms. And I just tend to like, it's like, oh, I'll only have this on my website and I won't even bring it to craft shows or I'll only bring this to craft shows and I won't even list it on my website. Um, you can also like manually update your web inventory while you're at a show. Like there's a, a jewelry artist that I'm friends with that I vend next to often and they'll sell something and they're like, well, better pull this off my Etsy before someone tries to buy it because I just sold this one of a kind piece in person. 
I made a list of a bunch of random advice. I was going to just read through some of it and uh, some of it I can skip because I've already said before. But I wanted to say when it comes to like, I should have said this earlier with like finding events to do and putting out uh, applications and stuff. It's helpful to make a calendar for yourself, even if it's just a list of like, oh, in January, this market has applications that open up or in Mm -hmm. December, I need to be, you know, checking to see if I got accepted into these markets. So just having a calendar for yourself, for your personal record to like keep yourself on schedule with applying to things is really helpful. Um, And that obviously can go into like grant and residency category, like for whatever, just it's good advice, I think. (laughs) It's good to know upfront, like how many markets you're interested in actually participating in. Are you trying to fill up every weekend of your year? Are you trying to just get your work out there seasonally? Are you maybe trying to do one or two markets a year? Like what is a frequency that feels right to you? And it's helpful to know like how much money you personally need to make before you do a market. Like for me, I feel comfortable if I like if I've made like two hundred dollars because I'm like okay, I like paid myself for some of my time today and reimbursed for the sales. I don't know, but for some, what you need to take is like way higher and probably not lower because that's fairly low for a, a day rate. But <laughs> Anyway, oh, if you are thinking about getting into markets in general, just like talk to other artists, talk to vendors, talk to event planners. Also, if you are like at an event vending, go introduce yourself to people. It is the best way to get in touch with your local arts community. And also it's just Mm -hmm. many of us are introverts. Many of us are anxious. Many of us are doing this for the first time or are stressed and I've had so many times where a, a stranger came up to my booth, introduced themselves, and now they're like a really good friend of mine just because they were like, hey, I saw your booth across the way and I love your work. I'm an artist too. I, I make that stuff. And I'm like, oh, I love your work, friendship. And then, you know, we, we talk because we artists have so much Beautiful. in common with each other. And yeah. I feel like it's like, what is the point of doing something in person if you are not connecting with a person or connecting with people? And like, it's hard to make friends as we get older. And it's hard to just build connections in general. So like, these are great opportunities to make friends. Like you are in the same boat. Everyone's trying to make a living. Everyone's trying to get their work out there. Everyone wants the event to be successful. It's also helpful before going into an event to just not have any expectations and do your best. So much of it's going to be out of your control. There's a lot of variables that can make or break a market that have absolutely nothing to do with you. It's Um, good life advice in general. Yeah. And be a respectful vendor. Like if you are, if you have been accepted into an event, you are going to want to promote that event. You are going to want to show up on time you are going to want to be kind and respectful and introduce yourself to your booth neighbors, to the event planners. 
You are going to want to like look out for people because maybe you showed up alone and you need your booth neighbor to watch your stuff while you go to the bathroom. And maybe your booth neighbor will need the same. I always like to offer it mm-hmm. when I'm introducing myself to someone that I'm working next to. Like, hey, we'll be working together all day. I see you're alone. I'm alone too. If you need to go to the bathroom, I got your back. And I hope the same is true in reverse. So just be neighborly. Be kind. You're working with other people. Doesn't hurt to be a person. Also, a great way to make friends in the art world is trading art. I feel like we probably don't talk about it enough, but this has been one of the best ways I've collected art doing trades, like walking up. A, it's another that. also great way to introduce yourself. It's like, hey, I love your work. I work over or my stuff's over there. If you come by and find you like my work, too, I'd love to trade at the end if you got inventory left. Oh, I love that idea. It's always fun. And it's like. It's just cute. Yeah. It's like not only do you sell your things there, but you get to walk home with a nice little collection of work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this should be basic, but like kindly greet customers that come into your space. Um, I I like to give people space because I don't think that I think most people don't want to be chatted up. But even if you're just like, hey, how's it going? Let me know if we need anything or if you have any questions. You'll probably repeat that to almost every customer that comes into your space. But it's a great way to acknowledge their presence without overbearing them. And, you know, you play it cool. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, no one likes to walk into a store like in the mall and there's like a salesperson following you around. But then when you do need to ask someone a question, like you want them to be available. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a delicate balance. Yeah. And it gives, I mean, some people really do want to chat. So it's, it opens the door for that too. But it helps yeah. you to say like, hey, we can speak. Um, also, it can, I mean, the person that might be in your booth may not be speaking. So it, it also helps you to acknowledge whatever circumstances you're in where you're like, okay, here, how do we communicate with each other? If you are lucky enough or in a position to bring a friend, a coworker, an assistant, another artist buddy, um, it really is helpful to have someone to do these events with. Uh, I, I almost never bring anyone with me because it's a lot to ask someone to like spend many hours with you, especially if you can't pay them. But it is a huge help because it's a lot of time by yourself and it's a lot of time on your feet. So if you can break it up, that's helpful. Oh, I also recommend pricing your work at events in like equal dollar amounts. So you don't have to bring like coin change. But I also do, I I tend to price my work a little bit lower at in-person events One, to encourage people like, hey, you can only get my cat toys at this price in person. Otherwise, it's like $2 more online. Um, Hmm. It incentivizes people to come shop in person, but it also like helps honor the fact that like you don't have the same overhead in person that you do online. So like it costs less to hand someone a cat toy than to ship it to them. So it's just a nice nod and... I don't know. It also encourages sales in the moment where I'm like, by the way, these are the cheapest prices that I have my work at ever. So it's only going to get more expensive if you want to wait to get it online later. It's how you close the deal. Yeah. Uh, It's worth mentioning. I forgot to write this down, but at in-person events, sometimes people try to haggle with you. Um, This is a totally personal thing. Some people love, like some vendors are cool with the haggle. 
I personally am not. I personally am deeply offended anyone try- anytime anyone tries to haggle <laughs> with me because I'm like, I'm like, bitch, you are trying to decrease my value and it is already low enough. Thank you. <laughs> but no, I would never say that to a person. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about that. But it's so interesting, though, like why that becomes it, it. It's like more of a norm or like the expectation that you could kind of like bargain with somebody in the moment versus if mm-hmm. you're purchasing something online, you just sort of accept that the price is the price. But mm-hmm. there's kind of like a yeah, like they're, they're like trying to get a better deal because they're they're in person. But I could see how that would be. Yeah, maybe some people would feel accepting of that and or be happy to negotiate and then it, it would mm-hmm. be offensive to others. So, Yeah, it's probably pretty standard at like antique fairs, maybe at like vintage mm, fairs. Sure. It's definitely probably more common at like farmer's markets. So I understand the approach with the haggle, but if anyone tries to haggle with me and if someone tries to haggle with you and you don't want to, you can just say, my prices are as affordable as I can afford to make them, or it's the prices are set, they're non-negotiable. Like there's a way to politely decline the haggle without putting someone off, but while also like establishing that like these things are of value. They're priced appropriately. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. if it's handmade or custom, it's definitely not the same um, like interaction you would expect at like you said, a farmer's market or an antique fair, but maybe if you're like mm-hmm. showing up in those spaces and they're like going around booth to booth doing that for other vendors, then they come to the independent artists that's selling things that they've like personally made in their studio. There, It's it's a little bit different, um, but maybe a, like a customer or someone walking in isn't necessarily going to make that switch. So it's, it's good to yeah. be aware of that, I feel, and just kind of like be prepared to have those conversations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What was the last thing I had? Oh, uh, I mentioned having price signs before. It's really helpful to have clear and simple signage at your table so that people can find out the materials you use, what it's priced at, what something is, um, how to care for it, things like that. But also, like, don't expect the very clear and visible price signs to stop people from asking you the questions that are very clearly explained on the signs. Like I will have someone hand something to me with the price tag clearly hanging on it. And they're like, how much is this? And I'm like, 45. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's, and also it, I guess it's, it's not fair to assume uh, someone's like experience or like literacy with these numbers and letters and symbols. So like, It's just helpful to communicate kindly in all instances because these are people coming into your booth. These are people that you're vending with. Just be respectful. I did get a couple questions from folks online. um, So I was going to answer those real quick. One was uh, someone asked, how are you COVID safe? And um, I am up to date with my vaccines. I wear a mask to indoor events. Uh, it's worth it if you feel there's a potential exposure to do a COVID test before your event. Um, It's wise not to stack your events, like space them out. So if you do get sick from an event that you're not carrying it on to the next. I don't, or I didn't participate in any markets at all from March of 2020 until January of this year. So I avoided 
any in-person events during the like peak COVID years um, or months. And um, although we did host a podcast event in that time frame. So for that event, every uh, everyone in attendance was maxed or <laughs> vaxxed, masked, and we had a really low capacity limit for the event so that everyone was able to be spaced out. And it's worth it to check with markets what they're doing regarding like being COVID safe. Uh, are they asking vendors to mask? Are they asking attendees to mask? Is the event indoor, outdoor? Um, so these are things to ask as well. Uh, someone asked where I get cute display items. And I say at thrift stores, um, secondhand shops, or like Facebook marketplace. Uh, you can go antiquing. I tend to just like pull items from around the house. Uh, a lot of kitchen items are great display items. And I try to like give the vibe of the space that I envision my work living in. And someone asked about capturing emails. So yeah, put out a little notebook and pen to capture email addresses or have your credit card processor set up so that you are capturing email addresses and then you can manually add them to your email list. I had had some questions about doing pop-up events where you are like the sole artist popping up at an existing storefront. I have done like a dozen of these events in the past. Like I think I did one at like Madewell downtown and these events are like not really for me. In my experience, they've had either like really low sales or low traffic or like not been super well promoted. So it's worth figuring out how well, like does that place already have people going there, whether you're there or not. So will it make a difference if you're there? Um, or would you be responsible for bringing your existing audience to their space? Like, what's the purpose? Mm. Are they bringing it to you? Who's helping who in that situation? Is it mutually beneficial, I guess, is really the question to ask. Um, and it's worth asking the event host how sales will function at the event. Are they planning on processing sales? Are you processing your sales? If it's a store that already carries your inventory, will they have your inventory out while you have your table out? Like, does the event or shop expect to split sales with you? So those are things to ask and consider before doing a pop-up event. That's interesting. And that's like specific to pop-ups, right? You're not saying that within a craft like show environment that the like the venue or the organization that's hosting the event is taking any sort of split or commission off of sales. Like once you've paid your vendor fees, you basically you're managing your own booth and processing your own sales, all of that. This is just for pop-ups within other existing businesses. Yes. Um, and gotcha. this is another bit of advice I forgot to mention, but if you're doing a craft show or market where the booth space is bigger than what you need, you can ask if you are able to split the booth and share it with another artist or vendor, and that can help like reduce your overhead. Like I used to do Artscape here in Baltimore, and usually that event it's like it's like seven or eight hundred dollars to have a booth. But if you split that with another artist, that helps to cut your overhead, especially if you don't need you know twelve by twelve feet of space to share your work. Um, mm -hmm. So that was another thing I forgot about. Split the fees if you can. Yeah. 
yeah, this is, gosh, there's been so much good advice shared in here. And I feel like it's really helped me understand just the basics of how you go about finding and setting up for different craft shows. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering too, like, how would you describe the benefits of doing craft shows for you personally? Um, like if someone has been selling work online and they're considering like shifting or incorporating some in-person events, like how would you, um, what would you say has been like one of the bigger benefits for you? Um, I guess I'm interested too in like how, how you measure success through these events. Like obviously there's a real um, desire to make sales and you know, you're looking at like uh, how much like profit as a marker of like how worthwhile the event is. But I imagine that you're also just meeting a ton of people who maybe they're not buying something in the moment, but they're like, you know, joining your mailing list or maybe they start following your work for a while. So are there other ways that you like have measured the success of an event? I guess I realistically measure the success of an event based on how I feel at the end of it. So did I make enough money to justify how much either time I spent or how much money I spent to do it? Like, did I pay myself back and did I pay myself a fair day rate, um, which I would consider a fair day rate minimum for myself to be like $100, which is why I try to make like around at least 200 at an event. But my average this year has been about $1,000 per event. But that's been my average. So I've had events where I've made a bit more and events where I've made a bit less. And ultimately, I, I will decide to do a craft show because I need money. And I am like having a hard time getting my work in front of people. Like I was kind of ready to walk away from craft shows at, or during COVID because I had had such a substantial growth in my audience online that I thought that I could basically make a living off of that audience indefinitely. And that proved to be okay for a couple of years. But then the tables turned online and how people interact, how people shop, what platforms they use, the algorithms, blah, 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 a million factors. And I realized like that was not a consistently reliable stream of income. Whereas selling at markets also not reliable necessarily, but it is an alternative stream of income. So I saw it as a way to, I guess, diversify and broaden my income streams. And listeners, I will yet again reference our Visualizing Your Finances episode where Nicole and I shared pie charts of our income streams over the years of doing our work full or doing our art businesses full time. But I shared or I looked back on my previous year's pie charts, uh, the, my like pre-COVID income streams, and recognized that craft shows and vending in person was a quite substantial chunk in the years in which I did it. So some of the years it was like 50% of my income, some of the years it was 25%. So I knew it was it was worth it to reintroduce craft shows and like when I was doing craft shows pre-COVID, I think the most I had ever made at an event or my my event average was like 600 an event. And now my event average is like a thousand an event. So I'm not sure why the my average has shifted. Maybe it's like a reduced frequency and like more selectivity on the markets themselves. Mm -hmm. But for me, much of it is financial. And then I 
buried the like social aspect of it. I felt like I was beginning to lose touch with my local artist community. I've seen like so many friends move away or change the way that they practice art or stop practicing art. And I felt like I didn't know who was making art in my city, which isn't true, but I just felt like I was getting out of touch. And so I thought by getting back into doing markets, I would see the fellow artists that are working actively. And it has introduced me to like a whole new group of artist buddies. I mean, I have a bunch of friends from from vending. I just call them all my craft show buddies. Um, But I have a bunch of craft (laughs) show buddies from the pre-COVID times that are still doing it. Um, And it's so wonderful to see. And those relationships have become really, really supportive uh, professional friendships because so many of us deal with the same confusion and the same applications, the same events, the same bullshit. So finding ways to... I don't know, just communicate with each other. It, I feel like it has very the the craft show community I've tapped into feels very much in the spirit of Beyond the Studio, where it's just all about sharing information and sharing opportunities. I've noticed some things in like coming back to craft shows now in my early to mid thirties versus when I started in my early twenties, which like there's a very different vibe approaching craft shows as a like entry level emerging artist versus as a quote unquote established artist, which I guess I'm like technically in that category now. Um, at least that's what the craft shows seem to see me as. And there's like weirdly an upside and downside to both. In the being an er- emerging artist, you lack a lot of experience. So there's a lot of like mistakes and learning and vagueness but then in being established you're like trying to remind that you're still relevant and cool and it's like no no no, I'm like I'm still making work but I'm making different work and it's not the same as when I vended with you eight years ago but you should still consider me and take me seriously even though I'm not a 20 something like I don't know I'm noticing that a little bit more and maybe that's Mm. like a self-imposed headspace but yeah just like different considerations a lot of markets have different priorities for the types of vendors they'll accept like some markets are really focused on spotlighting Baltimore artists versus some are really about like introducing new work constantly and some are about like bringing in outside artists from other cities um, to like see what else is out there so all kinds of things to consider and factor into the process yeah It seems like on the whole, a really genuinely supportive community, though, which is wonderful that, you know, if you are feeling kind of isolated in your making or in your town or city, like, you know, certainly there are the financial benefits of exposing your work to new audiences and selling work in person. But then beyond that, just the opportunity to connect with other small business owners or independent artists, in addition to people that, you know, are discovering your work and, and just like the, yeah, the the community, um, and then like chance for ongoing support that can come out of that, um, as like Mm -hmm. a real potential benefit to kind of getting yourself and your work out there more. And it's not surprising to hear for me to hear that like online sales really took over during the pandemic. Um, but now that things have opened up again, that there is like a return to 
in-person events or that maybe people de- yeah. are desiring those more like they you know we've been craving that for so long so that um it makes total sense that would be like things would shift and I don't know it's interesting I feel like again the benefit of the podcast just getting to like kind of see how things change and shift over time and like hearing mm-hmm. about how your business has evolved and like you know maybe for a period of years like craft shows didn't make sense but now they're like making a return and I feel like that's it's just a reflection of like the ebbs and flows of running a business yeah and it's it's always going to be different for everyone especially at different times and in phases of your life I forgot to mention another very valuable reason to sell your work in person is you get to witness people experiencing your work in person. There is something so valuable about watching people just become enamored with your art. Like it's really, it's a really moving thing and a beautiful thing to witness when you're like getting in your head and to see someone like rush across a room and be like, oh my God, I saw your felt lava lamps across the way and I had to come over here and see them closer. Like, can't get that experience online. Someone might give you a comment, but like to see someone have a visceral reaction to your work and to hear the elation in someone's voice as they explain to you how they're connecting to your, your creations, it's like it is an experience that I think every artist should have, whether you know, regardless of what setting you are showing your work in person, whether it's in a gallery, at an art fair, it's just really valuable to witness people engage with your work, to see what people respond to, to see how people react yeah. to things, to see what people want to touch or or what it what it evokes out of somebody. Hugely valuable. And like, honestly, if you didn't make decent money, but you got like really, really deeply valuable feedback and inspiration, that can be helpful immensely yeah absolutely so maybe that's like really the ultimate reason (laughs) i mean beyond like bills because we can't not pay those yeah (laughs) yeah man i feel like we've covered so much is there anything else that we haven't talked about um that you would want to make sure to share or to touch on no i think i i think i said everything in my notes i feel like we really covered a lot. Um, Listeners, if at the end of this conversation you find yourself with questions, please submit them. I'm happy to answer them. I'm happy to give feedback in any way. And uh, yeah, it's helpful to me to share this information and to gather it. And we'll we'll definitely share uh, in written form the like packing list. um, And we can include some of these notes and thoughts if that's helpful. But yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Listeners, we also love your feedback in general. So this is a great time, if you haven't already, to rate and review the podcast. Send us your feedback. It means the world to us. But also, Nicole and I, just like how I said, it it helps to know how people respond to your work. It helps us to know what you respond to, what you want to learn, what you're experiencing in your practice. And if you have any stories to share, I mean, I feel like I didn't even cover half of them. So Send us your thoughts, your reviews, your nightmares, <laughs> your your dreamy experiences. Yeah. We want it all. Yes. Amen. We wanted to continue our little train of reading some of our listener reviews. 
um, because they're just so lovely. And we want to show you that we read and appreciate them, but also maybe encourage you to write us your own poetic feedback if you feel so inclined. From G10034N, they said, making the impossible possible. I found you like a tiny grain of sand on the beach, unique and beautiful. You demystify and clarify the ocean of confusion and you open the closet doors and let the bones come tumbling out. Thank you. Like, thank you. Oh my gosh. I know. I, I know. remember when that review came in and I feel like I can't even read it to this day without tearing up a little bit. It's just, I, we're loving the visual metaphors. So poetic. I know. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It means so much to us to get to, to hear how folks are interacting with the podcast and that it is landing well with our listeners. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! I'm also recording now. Yes. Okay. I'm Yay. trying to do better about actually speaking into my microphone and not like rolling away across the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good reminder. Yes. <sighs> okay. I'm already sweating. <laughs> <laughs> we got this. You got this. <laughs>